Technology should come into your life and enhance it and solve a problem that you've got, not make you go and find a problem that you didn't know you needed to solve. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In this episode, we welcome back Joe Bagley. As our field CTO, Joe gets to talk with a lot of customers, all sorts of sizes, all sorts of industries. So we asked him what he's seeing and hearing as top of mind concerns and challenges. He talks a lot about the resurgence of cost being a top issue, one that's always been there, but now is back on top. The ever-changing attitude towards cloud and whether it's a destination, a journey or a distraction. We explored his passion on the topic of sustainability and a great conversation on how AI has become a talking point. You're going to have to listen to his amusing story about the gadgets we can't live without at home. (laughs) Yeah, and the tech for the sake of tech. Finally, we talk with Joe about Mission Motorsport and why it's such an important activity that he's getting involved personally and professionally. So let's get on with it. Welcome, Joe. Great to have you back with us. Hi, it's cool to be back. Oh, there we go. It's been a long time and we've been on quite the journey. Can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? Yeah, so for those who don't know, I'm the Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Europe, Middle East and Africa here at VMware. It's a very long title, but a short way to put it is I'm the connection between R&D and the field and our customers and partners and drive all things around that in terms of where we're going, what we're doing, what's next and leading the technical community, I suppose, within VMware. That's probably a shortest way to describe it. All right, super then. So from a career perspective, how did you get started and how did you end up here? (laughs) The shortened version, the really short version, because that's a two-hour podcast in itself, but the short version (laughs) is after a brief career in the army, a two-year stint at Imperial College, which left in disillusionment, I ended up at Hewlett-Packard. After various short, weird jobs, I ended up at Hewlett-Packard working in their finance and remarketing division as a bilingual secretary to the head of finance and remarketing for Europe, which is quite an interesting one. So I started my career talking in English and French about FASB 13, which is very odd for someone who now works in IT. And But I was a computer scientist, a technologist, etc. And I was the first person there to say, hey, wouldn't it be a really good idea if I plug this laptop into a projector? And we kind of did things together <laughs> as a team. No, no kidding, it really was, because overhead projectors were still a thing back then at HP. And I then ended up at working for IT at HP, leading the help desk at HP and various consulting jobs, blah, blah, blah. Interesting highlights include being involved in the rollout for Enron, uh, which was fun. It was also, I knew what, what best to buy at the fire sale afterwards as well from the kit that was in IT. That was interesting. <laughs> Various other bits in there. And then ultimately was part of the team that, that built Quest Software. So as you remember, Quest Software here, Quest Software ever played in the Oracle world around Foglight or Windows world around active roles, etc. Up through the first part of this century for 10 years uh, as the CTO there for Europe. And then now for 12 years, I've been at VMware as the, the CTO for Europe and Eastern Africa. And um, I joined here with a sort of two to three year vision to see would be fun, probably interesting, see where they're going. And it's still fun and interesting. And here I am. So what is it you wanted to do when you left school? Uh, I wanted to join the army and be a soldier, which is kind of what I did. Uh, <laughs> and I carried on doing as a reserve for a very long time. So I'd always had a passion around that. But I think I was realistic and pragmatic in that it wouldn't be a career. I saw a lot of sort of 40 year old men who weren't doing so well after having spent their first part of their career in the army. So I thought oh, I better have some fun and move on, but I did it in the reserves. So I think that's one way. I really want to be a helicopter pilot, but that's a whole separate story. I ended up sort of getting some hours in a helicopter and getting my private pilot's license. And 
Yeah, I, I suppose it was then sort of, I never really knew what I wanted to do in IT. I always knew I enjoyed IT. I enjoyed computers. I enjoyed technology. I was an absolute geek when it came to anything to do with technology and always had been. When I was a kid at school, there was no such thing as a chief technology officer. It wasn't even a thing. So you couldn't exactly sit there in the mid-80s and go, I want to be a chief technology officer. Everyone around <laughs> me would have gone, what? No, there's not even a thing. But I just knew that there was something really exciting in with computers. My father was at IBM and ended up retiring a few, 20 years ago now, I think, after 34 years at IBM. So I grew up as an IBM child as well. And he used to work at banking branch in the city and spent, you know, I was regaled as a child of stories, which I've forced him to put into a blog, which I'll dig a link out for you, of, of fixing mainframes for Lloyd's and God knows what else. And and he was based in Basingall Street and all the exciting time in the city in the 70s, building up things like that. So I think there was a sort of an excitement put into me around technology and computers from the start, with weirdly a banking link, because that's where it came from. And then, yeah. yeah, I suppose that, that I didn't know really what I wanted to be. I just knew I wanted to be involved in tech. And then I kind of found through doing it, and, and I suppose through the way I am, I suppose I found that I had a couple of things in that I was involved in technology, but could also talk to humans. And that was fairly unique at some points in my career. And um, that's really helped me move on, I think, is, is the answer there. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, but yeah, I, if you look back to, to 10, 12, 14 year old me, it would have been what can I do that involves playing with Lego, which I still do. So I think I've won, really. <laughs> Nice. So, well, so looking back then, what would you say had been your career-defining moment? Probably, I always, I can come back to this one, I suppose. The career-defining moment is in the 90s, I was doing various consulting jobs, like your normal thing, going out and doing rollouts of Windows 95 and all that kind of stuff, and Windows NT and all the early versions. We can talk for hours around old versions of Novell and stuff. Mm -hmm. and did all that, and then actually the tipping point was I was hired into Quest Software, actually not as the CTO. I was hired in to be the lead PS consultant, the lead professional services consultant in, in Europe, So I was because I was out there doing it. So I, I joined and I was out there doing actually NT4 to Active Directory migrations was the first thing. And so I was out there doing all that, literally in the trenches, day in, day out doing that. And then I got asked to do a presentation at Microsoft about my kind of, you know, tales from the trenches. And I'd, I'd done presentations before in my, obviously in the military, I'd stood up in front of people lots of times and done presentations, but that was not, it was about what hill we were going to attack and how to strip this weapon down. It wasn't necessarily, you know, about computers. And I found myself standing up in front of a whole bunch of probably 100, 150 people at Microsoft in, in the UK in Thames Valley and doing a sort of 45-minute talk about all the stuff that goes wrong in doing migrations. But I threw a few jokes in there that were in-jokes in the industry. If you understood NT and you understood AD, you'd get the joke. It was really sad. But I really, really liked it. I got a really strong vibe off it. I really enjoyed it. I found I started to get a... And I started to sort of hone the craft then around presenting. And I think that was the tipping point for me. Was Until then, I was sort of just another techie. But at that point, once I realized that by sharing what I could do with other people, I found that I got a real a real buzz, I suppose, from the engagement of an audience and an engagement of others. And, and not in the, not in a narcissistic way. It just I felt sort of energy from it, I suppose, really. And that's, that was the tipping point for me. You know, over 20 years ago, that sort of took me out from being the, the consultant literally under the tables into being the one that was stood up in front of people. And I suppose the rest of it all follows on from there, really. And then, you know, culminates in, in presenting in front of over 20,000 people in Vegas. And it kind of, it's all that combined, I suppose. So yeah, that, that was my tipping point. Wow. It was really, really kind of cool. That's, that's good. That's good. So what's been your proudest moment then from a professional perspective? Oh, that's an interesting one. I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever had, you know, a lot of people go, oh, there was that project I did. I, I was involved in so many projects and bits and pieces over the years. I couldn't pick one that was like, okay, that, that was my proudest moment. 
I think actually some of my proudest moments come from people that I've worked with and seeing them succeed. And I don't mean that in a really naff way. It literally is just some people that I've mentored, particularly in the last sort of 10 years of my life and watching their careers progress and watching them get promoted and watching them become successful, I suppose. is those are pro- And there's a few of those, none that I'd like to call out individually for the sake of the individual's concern. But I think that's probably the, the proudest bit for me is that, you know, it's not necessarily any particular project I was involved in or something I, I personally did or my biggest presentation, standing on stage with so-and-so was the best bit. I think actually, if someone asked me in 20 years' time when I'm all retired and sat somewhere what was the best bit, it'll be still being in touch with those people. Great answer. All right, so let's move on to our deep dive. And and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So, Joe, as we say, you come a long way since you helped uh, kick off this series of podcasts. Welcome Mm -hmm. back. Can you, you know, as our field CTO, you get to talk with a lot of customers, all sorts of sizes, all sorts of industries. Mm. What are you seeing and hearing as kind of top of mind concerns and challenges right now? One is cost. You know, and, and the funny thing is, if you look back in, it's always cost, right? It's, always, it's never not been cost. It's always cost, right? But I think it was brought home to me. There was the CIO of, a, of a, one of our largest sort of customers in Europe sat opposite me and he went, look, here's the reality. He was actually from a public sector. And he went, you know, uh, I know my budget for the next five years. It's been laid out for me. I know it goes up 2% a year. It's all planned out, he says, but I'm staring in the face of hardware costs going up by 20%, 30%, software costs going up by 10%, staff costs going up by, you know, whatever, based on cost of living, etc. So that's a maths problem I've got to sort out, I think, is the answer. And I think that's the interesting thing, is there's there's always been... Up until now, it's always been budgets have been fairly flat, and but they kind of kept pace with inflation, if you know what I mean. I think now, actually, it's it's the fact that there's an inversion there and there's, there's a real pressure and people are starting to say, okay, well, I need to look. And so it's interesting to talk to people about how they're approaching those challenges by looking at consolidation, looking at getting much better efficiency of what they've already got. They're being much more careful about what they are investing in, a bit less speculative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It moves the risk profile for people in IT as well. So I think, yeah, that's that's probably the primary one tends to be around cost. And then the next one is the whole cloud story. And, you know, are we in the cloud? Are we out the cloud? Are we multi-cloud? Are we not in all that kind of stuff, I suppose, really? Those are the, the two big talking points, I suppose. And do you see cloud still being linked to cost or or something different? It's really funny because I don't think people never really knew what cloud was and I don't think they do today. When you ask a lot of people why they're doing cloud, most people can't answer it. They think they're doing it because it's cheaper or they think they're doing it because it's faster or more scalable or whatever, but they don't tend on the whole, there's always odd people that do, they don't tend on the whole to have those proof points to back that up. And so, you know, mostly I find myself walking into... IT leaders, one level down from CIO, or maybe even CIO, that are sat there going, uh, we're, yeah, we're all in on Hyperscaler X. And you go, why? And they go, well, I don't know, it wasn't really our decision. And you find that decision was taken much above them at a financial level as opposed to a technology or a strategic level. That someone said, oh, we've done this really good deal with Microsoft or with Amazon or with Google or whatever. And I'm not sure people actually go back and revisit those soon enough or sit down and look into those in enough detail. So when you actually look out across the cloud landscape now, you're looking at a lot of people that are 
are jaded by, from a technology perspective, that it's not as easy to get in there as they possibly thought it was, it's complicated, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, there's people sat there going, well, actually, we've not really seen the cost savings that we wanted, and because we've not got enough in there to get the cost savings that we want, because it's too difficult to do that, and so on and so on and so forth. So you actually end up looking around at, there's pockets of fabulous success of individual projects where people have done something amazing in the cloud. But in terms of a, a wholehearted, like we've gone all in on X or all in on Y and it's been successful, they're very, very, very few and far between. Often you talk about the pendulum within within IT and where do you think we are on the cloud pendulum? <laughs> There's the pendulum. We actually put this into the keynote for VMworld one year as well, this pendulum, and this sort of decentralized, centralized. We talked about this years ago, is that there is this definite trend of centralizing, decentralizing, etc. We go back to mainframes and through to mini computers, all the way through desktops, it's Windows and blah, blah, blah. It's all been about, oh, it's all coming out, it's all going back in, etc., etc. I think the answer is we end up never ending at one end or the other of the pendulum, but hovering kind of around the middle, moving one side to the other and, and slowly edging our way one way or the other. Right now, my general feeling is that we are we, we, the pendulum didn't swing far enough towards the cloud as people wanted, and it's definitely on its way back. The conversations I'm now having are, are much more around distributed application architectures. I think people are realizing that you're going to have some stuff is going to be on-premises, some stuff is going to be in the public cloud, some stuff is going to be at the edge. And so thinking that you're going to follow that pendulum all the way to being all cloud or all the way to being on-premises is, is not the right way to do it. I think realizing that you're going to have to do all of them is, is the, the pragmatic view. And then the fun thing there is... I think we always knew that. I think the mistake came from when, if you look back on history, and you know, the history I discussed at the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of my early part of my career doing migrations. And, and when you actually get into it, that's all we tend to do in IT is migrate, right? You're typically migrating from one platform to the next. If you go back in your history, every major IT project you ever did was deploying a new thing and migrating off the old thing, right? That's basically what you do. It's very rare. You're building and creating something amazing and brand new. You know, my first ever project at HP was, was working on a, a system called RLS, which was the replacement leasing system for ILS, which was the international leasing system that we have then, both running on HP 3000. And so what that means is in our psyche as IT people, we do migration stuff. So we normally assume that when something comes along, it's going to be replacing the thing that we've got and we're going to migrate from what we've got to that. And so that's going to be our next thing. And so if you look back in history... We never really finished any of those migrations, very rarely. You know, if you go back and look across the IT estate, there's remnants of stuff still left from all these bits and pieces. So we sort of move most of it or some of it and then find that it's not all going to work and stays behind. So you end up with this smorgasbord of tech. I remember taking a, a young uh, salesperson into the, the UK MOD many years ago and he, he asked this strange question, which you never should have asked, but it's trained from a stranger. So what sort of systems have you got here? And the answer came back with, well, if it's been available since 1960, we're still running it somewhere, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so to, to cut to the point on that one, people thought cloud was the next thing. So we went, okay, fine. Well, what we're doing now, we're going to replace with cloud. When in fact, what they didn't realize was cloud's just the next thing that we were going to add to the things we've already got. And, and that's it's, it's that simple. It's not the next thing. You're not going to, it's not suddenly, oh, how far are you down your cloud journey? There's no cloud journey to go on. We're not going to the cloud. No one is going to the cloud. We're just saying, okay, fine, you're going to add this way of doing stuff to the way you're doing things now, and you'll find the best bits over there to replace the bits you're doing on-premises. And then you should think a bit more intelligently about why, and is it cost, is it availability, is it speed, is it all these different things, legislation that, that will suit what runs where. So we, how far along is that cloud pendulum? I think we need to take the pendulum off and go, it's not swinging. And sorry, we're just, it's another thing to add to the things we've already got. Just to reiterate what Joe's just said. So I had a meeting internally with a 
a load of financial services account teams recently. And I asked the question in the room, who thinks their customer has got more than 20% of their applications in the cloud? Now, on a show of hands, I saw absolutely zero. All right, so, so I think it really does reinforce what Joe said. It's, it's just another option. I think people, arguably for good reason, drank a load of Kool-Aid that says, let's shift everything. To the, you know, let's all go cloud because it's going to enable me to go faster. It's going to enable me to reduce costs. It's going to make me coffee in the morning. It's going to do all these wonderful things, right? And the truth is the experiment has not necessarily delivered at scale what people hoped. And now they're finding out actually what's really important. And Joe mentioned distributed application architectures. You're now seeing that manifest itself in terms of workload architecture. How am I pragmatically, practically going to do things? And the cloud is a great answer for the right question. It's not the answer for every question that you will have. As companies do now look at cost, and they're starting to understand the cost and implications of cloud, most financial services organizations predominantly still run on what would be considered non-cloud-based technology or their own private version of clouds. But the, the challenge around cost, the challenge around capabilities, can I really drive my applications in the manner that I want, in the pace that I've got? I've, we've sat on calls, and you've probably done the same, Joe, where customers are really ambitious, but practically they're not going to be able to execute. And I think that's all part of that conversation now where there's a matured thinking around this stuff. Well, and you look at it, right? If you look back through history, it's always been the new thing is the cheaper, more commoditized thing, right? So we go from, to, to mainframe. Oh, we've got these AS400s. They're a bit cheaper. They're a bit more commoditized. They're a bit more easy to use than the big, hunky mainframe, so you could use that. And Oh, Unix has come along. Oh, that's fantastic. That's it's massively commoditized. There's loads of different options. You can get it from all these different vendors. It's really, really cool. It's interoperable. It's commodity, blah, blah, blah. And then Windows comes along, which is cheaper and more commoditized than, than Unix because it's on x86 and blah, 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 and, and you know, so on and so on and so forth. It just keeps going. And then cloud comes along and that's cheaper and more commoditized. And, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like people get overexcited about each of these things and don't realize that we don't just move everything to the next platform. So, yeah, you're right. And, and yeah, it's, if I... Oh, God. The number of people I sat opposite who've gone, oh, yeah, we're all in on the cloud. We're going to get 50% of our applications there within two years is, is frankly laughable in this industry. And I said it in the, the clouded documentary with HPE. It's, it's actually laughable because uh, no one's done it. And, well, okay, I say no one. Someone's going to comment, yeah, this particular company's, but there are very, 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 very few that have actually gone beyond that point. And they do say that. I had a company on a call say they were going to do 70% in three years. And I unfortunately chuckled because I I have no constraint over my sense of humour. And I and I asked, how are you going to do that based upon the fact with the best intention in the world, you have moved the easiest, most agile things to the cloud already, not the difficult stuff that's, yeah. un, that's not regulated. And I reckon you're, you know, we're at 18%. And I said, yeah, but half of that's SaaS. So we, we could, I understand why you're reporting up. I understand why you're telling your CIO and your CIO is telling his COO we're on this path. I said, but... Do you really think you can do 70% in in the period? Well, if we don't say that, we won't get the funding. That was what was said. <laughs> yeah. And and it is, I, I feel sad because you sometimes go and sit with these these people and, and some of them are not believers at all. Like I said at the beginning, they've just been told that this is what's happening to them and they're almost resigned to the fact that it's not going to work or it's not going to happen. And I, I think 
without here's, here's the ultimate cynic in me, but I've, I've said this publicly a few times, is that the average tenure of an IT leader, and I'm talking CIO or very high, is very short relatively. It's a couple of years, right? Two or three years. So someone can make a statement like this, so we're going to be 70% in the cloud within three years. It's going to be fantastic. And then leave before they get held account for it. But they mm. set that strategy, and they're the person that built the cloud strategy at Bank X. And isn't it great they built the cloud strategy at Bank X? And look at this strategy. You know, it's on course, isn't it? Brilliant. It's fantastic. Would you like me to come to your company and you know come do the cloud strategy for you and, and get you on the same course over the next two years? You know, it's it's that kind of thing. And so it, it's and but that was you can say that with any technology, right? Well, look at poor, poor jaded old men. I prefer windswept and interesting, but yeah. You know. That's exactly what I am going to answer. I'll, I'll even quit say I got this off of Joe. I'm, I'm windswept and interested. The, 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 the comment that you made there is absolutely true. The, the longevity of a CIO is very, very short in reality. And most CIOs are brought in to create change. So they create a whirlwind of change with, with all the right intention, mm. but they run out of runway for a variety of different reasons. And then the next CIO comes in and says, we're going to adjust this. And there are some great strategies, but they just can't be implemented at the pace and scale that people have promised. So the tenure thing is really important because there are some customers that I go to, not, not banking, actually, believe it or not, because banking seems to be very volatile in that way. But there's another customer that we've got that I went to, and, and everyone in our IT department has been there for about 20-plus years. All the senior management have been at that company for 20-plus years. They're invested in that organization. As such, their IT strategy is absolutely rock solid. It's not particularly, like, bleeding edge because that's not what they – it isn't because they, they are – plan carefully, they roll out, they do things, they make strategic decisions, they realize they're going to be accountable for them in three or four or five years' time, and that, that's part of the history. So they've got fabulous, rock-solid IT, with, which is exemplary. And then, again, I hate to say this, but it happens in governments too. A lot of public sector IT actually is not that bad when you get down to it because of the long tenure of those people involved in it, and they care because they're building their own future as well. So I think there's a lot to be said for that, right? Well, I, but I think I think with what you've just said, uh, the thread is through the whole of that around tenure is a is a big focus. There isn't really ever a greenfield, and and well, unless you're in a startup, but you know there isn't really ever a greenfield, and you're either migrating or fixing the perceived mess of the previous incumbent. I did a thing with BAE Systems recently. There's a video we're, we're going to be showing on that where I went and visited the MISC, which is basically in Portsmouth. They've got a, a ship on land. Basically, if you imagine a ship from sort of waist high up built on top of a hill. And in there, they build the entire mock system for new platforms for, for ships. So like the you new know, Queen Elizabeth, they built the entire IT systems for that in there. It's got radar domes and everything. It's not just IT, it's the, all the electrical systems, everything. It's really quite cool. And they were showing the new, whatever it is, type blah blah frigate that's coming out. And I went to the guy and said, that must be really exciting to work on a greenfield project like that. He said, no, this is the most brownfield stuff you've ever seen. They're dragging stuff that's 30, 40 years old onto this new ship. But, you know, <laughs> so it's not greenfield at all. There's still, so no one has this greenfield. You look at these fantastic new things, they're, they're never greenfield. It's like, oh, yeah, they're dragging that old system from there and whatever, whatever. So no one has greenfield. <laughs> Let's just nudge it on a little further then. What's your take on where we are around sustainability then? You know, we, we've talked about cloud a lot and we'll do sustainability rather than the full ESG. Yeah. Um, but but sustainability in IT, you know, I think, you know, shutting your data centres, moving to the cloud, that was all seen as a very, uh, you know, air quote, sustainable thing to do. What, what's your take on where where we are on the sustainability journey? Well, I think what's nice is that we're now seeing sustainability becoming an economic 
requirement, I think, is the best way to put it, in that people are becoming sustainable because they have to, because the economics are forcing them to. What I mean by that is we're all becoming accidentally a little bit more sustainable, even individuals. So if you you look at ourselves, if I'd sat down with anyone in Britain about 18 months ago and gone, do you know what? What what I really need to do is see if you can halve the energy usage in your house. They'd look at me and laugh and go, what are you on about? Half the energy? No, you you go away, you you, you weird person with your your greenness. And now when suddenly the prices have tripled, everyone's trying to halve the energy usage in their house because it's an economic reality. And I now sit there and I I said this comment on one and and four out of the six people on the call I was on lifted up the water bottles they had on their, the water bottles they had on their lap. It's like, wow, you know. Um, and so, you know, if you extrapolate that up, again, everyone I talk to, going back to that, that CIO I was talking to about their costs, their energy costs are going up, dramatically going up. So if your energy costs are dramatically going up, you've got to look at how you reduce energy costs. And you reduce energy costs by cutting down the amount of stuff you're running in your data centers or running it more efficiently or whatever, right? It's a primary thing because a lot of people, data centers is a large part of their energy consumption or, or full stop their IT estate, wherever it is. And so we're seeing people, you know, becoming accidentally sustainable as opposed to being as a conscious thing. And so the interesting thing is people always looked at sustainability as something that was going to cost them money. And now it's the point that you, if you don't do it in a sustainable way, you're, you're not going to save money. It's going to be more expensive. So I think that's, that's really exciting to me as someone who's been pushing sustainability for a long, long time to see the economic reality forcing people's hands. Do you see a paradox between people that want to invest in being sustainable but are challenged on where that investment goes, as you mentioned before. So maybe sustainability is coming down the order in terms of corporates. Are they deferring the ESG investments because in cost-constrained environments, they're having to invest or look at different types of investment? Yeah, so I can see that. But that comes down to CapEx versus OpEx, right, And in in that context. And so, yeah, if you look at that on a personal perspective, we all know it makes sense to put solar panels on your house, but actually that's a huge CapEx expenditure as a person. But you know the OpEx reduction is there on a 20-year basis, so actually it would make sense, but it's a large CapEx burden initially. And so I think you are seeing people now, they're looking at OpEx energy savings for obvious cost reasons. But yeah, maybe there is a reticence there to, to go and invest money And again, that comes down to the fact that people tend to have a very short-term vision on expenditure. People tend to be very focused on this quarter, this year's OPEX, as opposed to OPEX over the next three to five years in terms of what they're doing. And watching people, it's very rare that I come across an organization that has a five-year vision around their OPEX in in anything that they're doing. I've worked in a software sales organization now for over 20 years. And I always remember, if you you can go into a company and save them OPEX in the next 12 months, you're going to be on a winner, right? But if you're going in there to tell them you're going to save OPEX, over the next five years, it's a much harder sale because there's other people who are going to walk in and save Mopex this week, right? So, you know, and that's again comes to this sort of longevity, this 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 view of, of people being able to to make longer term plans, which which ultimately hurts people. So, changing the subject again, then a li- just a little, there is a ton in the news right now about generative AI. Hmm. Now, and I know, and I know, you and I have talked about. AI in the past yeah. and and how you train ML models and and the unintended consequences of that. But this generative AI thing seems to have kind of like come out of nowhere. So what's your take on on that in, in and the conversations you're having about that? Well, it's, it's, it's 100% not come out of nowhere. So the, the GPT and then we're on GPT-3+, you know, we've gone beyond that. So it's, it's been around for a while, right? So this... 
This generative model has been around for a long time. What suddenly people have noticed it for is because finally normal people have been allowed to touch it. And that's what's happened with ChatGPT. So up until now, it's been very much the remit of data scientists and interested technologists and geeks and hackers that can go and play with some AI, right? With ChatGPT and other, the generative art AI and other things that are now suddenly hitting the news, and that's because people have finally put interfaces on them that mean they're accessible by, by the general public. And I think that's what's really exciting to me in this whole context of AI, is that until now... You know, it's very much been the preserve of technologists. And so the possibilities that have been explored have been limited by the biases of those people. Now we're allowing ChatGPT to be accessed by the masses. You're enabling it to be viewed by people with a whole different set of biases right? <laughs> or a, a whole different set of understandings of how things work, what's normal, what's not normal, what's legal, what's not legal, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where it gets exciting to me. And so it, it's like if you look back at anything in history, you know, it's when you get that particular piece of technology and you put it in the hands of the normal person, that's when things happen in really cool ways with technology because they get used in ways that people don't expect, don't think about, blah, 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 right? And so I think that's it, and that's why it suddenly hit the news, and my, my mum's asking about it. That's always a good bellwether for me is my asking about it, and I know we've hit the mainstream. Those are the kind of things where it gets... And that's, for me, why there's a, there, we're, in, we're going to enter an age of wonder, I think, now, around AI, that we've had the promise of it for... Ah, oh, I always remember it. It's going to be the game-changing thing since the 90s, in the early 90s. You know, I had an, an Imperial College. I had lectures in it. AI, which was hilarious because we didn't have the brain power or compute power or the, the data storage to even go near what we were talking about possibly doing. Now that's come to reality, put that in touch with some humans, and I mean, I'm normal humans, not people like me, and suddenly you get the amazing things that are going to happen, I think, and that's that's really it. So the, the great thing about ChatGPT is it's going to end up already, it has, in the hands of the wrong people, right? And even if OpenAI restrict the usage of their model around particular technologies, it's not going to stop other people who aren't particularly as ethical going and, and building their own and, and doing things like that. And that's where it gets a bit more exciting, I think, in a, in a scary way as to what people are going to do with that. Well, and, and I think it's, it's that it feels like it's that on that borderline between science fiction and science fact. And, and the, the potential for tech for bad seems to currently outweigh the thinking versus it being tech for good. Yeah, I think, but it's always that way, though. Whenever a new technology comes out, people always think about it as tech for bad more than tech for good. And, you know, whether it's people running dark webs or whatever it is, there's always that that undercurrent out there. I, I think we've got to get a little bit ahead of ourselves in in what we're doing around AI and in, in understanding how we can combat that. And so when you've got the fact that you can use one of these models to code, which has been very eloquently displayed, I, they, even someone actually managed to essentially get ChatGPT to pretend to be a virtual machine and then talk to it as such. It's kind of cool. It's an amazing things you can do. You start to think of the possibilities that go beyond that, of telling it to to hack things for you or find the weaknesses in this code or find the vulnerabilities over here. And you, and you start to do that at scale. It gets very exciting. So we should already be using that in the other way. And we are, as an industry, we are doing that. But we're not doing it necessarily with generative AI. And I think when you start to look at how we can do that with generative AI, it's going to get really exciting when we start to look at how we look at the security of systems, look at cyber as a topic yeah. with generative AI in the how would you make this better kind of thing. So what 
what, what, what should I be doing with this? And we've done it ourselves with tweaking and tuning stuff. And we've run various AR models that are now in our products in ARIA and other bits and pieces we've got at VMware that we've done that, that uh, look at this thing and optimize it to run as fast as possible or as most efficient as possible by twiddling all the knobs and finding which, way, which, one, which one wins. And AI can twiddle a lot more knobs a lot faster than any human can. I think... It just relies on the on the imagination of humans now. And I think that's the really fun thing about this is that the AI doesn't have the imagination yet. So you need to get the imagination of the human brain and add that to the power of generative AI and you're going to get some wonderful stuff, both good and bad. You got me thinking a lot about the enterprise benefits that you could have of just getting a ton of work done and and identifying issues, areas of vulnerabilities and challenges that you would never even go anywhere close to previously so you know a lot of positives there let's go kind of it's as i say still in that science fiction bit where where does that then go in the kind of the robot debate well so i i think it's it's robots always are perceived as replacing humans right so it's always we're going to replace humans and in fact i don't think you a lot of the human replacement actually is being done by software if you look into the banking world particularly look what we do with most graduates in the banking world you make them sit there and play with models in excel spreadsheets for three years right i mean i can get ai to do that overnight thanks very much so now what do i do with the graduates you know so that's that's the first thing so um uh it when we look at the robots more generally in our industry and in in the wider world, you're looking at again. It's we're getting to the point where robots are meeting humans properly. So up until now, there's been robots for years. You go to any car factory, there's robots everywhere. But the thing about these robots is they're very prescribed in what they do, and they're behind a big perspex shield, and no humans are allowed near them while they're operating because it's quite dangerous. And now we're starting to see, okay, fine, well, let's put some robots in with the humans. It's starting out with little buggy-type things that are driving around delivering food in Milton Keynes and, and things like that. But what we're, what we're doing there is we're normalising the interaction of autonomous things in the human world with humans, I think, is the way to think about that. So, you know, we're getting people used to these little things driving around, and eventually it's going to be whole buses and cars, etc., driving around in, in an autonomous fashion. It's, it's probably the leading way we're seeing that. The other thing you're sort of seeing, actually, is... When you look at robots, what, again, you're looking at, I suppose, is the replacement of humans and technology. Look at things like Amazon Fresh or Amazon Go in the US, which is the stores, I don't know if you've been in them in London, where you just walk in and scan your Amazon app and you just pick stuff up off the store and walk out with it. My wife was aghast when I took her into one. I was just picking, like, sweets up off the shelf and put them in my pocket. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's fine. That's, that's how it works, you know. Um, and I, you, know, all of that stuff is replacing human interaction with computers, whether that's there's no checkout person anymore. I mean, we've been through the, the unexpected item in the bagging area thingies already, but the next step from that is we don't even have one of those. You just walk out with it. So there's no human interaction whatsoever. Yeah, so it's exciting to me when I when I think about the possibilities. But again, it's the same as AI. What we're doing now is you're seeing humans and robots interacting and learning how to interact with each other, like you're seeing humans and AI learning how to interact with each other. And I think that for me, that intersection is the exciting bit. And that's where all the problems are going to happen. That's where you know there's going to be crashes, there's going to be accidents, there's going to be things that go wrong, and there's going to be shock reactions, and there's going to be bad stuff in the press and all this other kind of stuff. But it's it's that unstoppable progression of technology is really exciting. Joe, on a similar vein, can I have your opinion on metaverse and where we're going to go with that whole <laughs> virtual world and, and the value oh. of it? 
Oh, so I'm I'm famous for saying I'm 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 fed up for you know solutions looking for problems you know blockchain being one of them and and now you've got the metaverse I think the metaverse is a solution looking for a problem very much so we've had uh, multi-user online things for very 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 long time God if I go back one of the first things I wrote at school in my A level for computer science. My friend wrote a multi-user dungeon, a guy called Paul Oram, and we, we ran it in, on all 13 computers on our computer network at school. It was very exciting. We've gone from there through things like Second Life and Elder Scrolls Online and others as well and all that kind of stuff. So it's there. We already know how to do this. But what I'm not seeing is a bunch of human beings out there desperate to jump online and do that. And I've not seen ultimately the killer app that's going to draw them into doing that. And I think that's really the point here is there's no... We talk about the metaverse. I think the metaverse is a really good way for people in social media companies to talk to their investors about there still being a bright future for them. Right, it's a really good way to do that. But I don't necessarily think it's, oh, this is an answer, because what we haven't told, what we've not seen is this, is this is the problem that this thing solves for us. Now, granted, social media wasn't solving, a, it was kind of solving a problem, but not really. It's, it's that kind of thing. And sometimes it's not quite obvious what problem it's solving. So again, maybe I'm missing something, but I, I'm waiting to see what it is the problem that the metaverse solves for me. And I think that's really it. I think we've got to think about technology very much in those terms. I was sort of grounded in that a bit this week. And a very unrelated thing, you've seen those NFC tags you can get, the little NFC stickers, you can literally buy them for 20, 20 pence each and packs of 100 on, on Amazon. And my, my daughter bought one and started raving to me about this cool thing. Well, I can put this NFC tag here, Dad, and if I swipe my phone on it, it does this automation or whatever. And I was kind of like, yeah, but are, we, are, we, are you just finding places to put these NFC tags in your life? <laughs> or have you got this NFC tag is solving a specific problem that you have? You know, and it's that kind of thing, right? Technology should come into your life and enhance it and solve a problem that you've got, not make you go and find a problem that you didn't know you needed to solve. <laughs> and that's where it starts to get annoying. It's that I sit around with my my friends and they were, my, I was, funny enough, I was, went to pick up my wife who'd been out with a bunch of her friends to, to a pub and I sat there for the last half an hour, her and her friends, and most of them were complaining about the automation that had been put into their house by their husbands. Most of them complained <laughs> that they couldn't turn the lights on properly and why can I not have a light switch and why can't I do this and why do I have to do this? Do I have to, why can't I just turn the heating up and why can't I? And again, I think you, when you sit down and sit back and look at it, you think how much of this technology we put in because we could and not because it needed to be done because it solved a problem or made something better. And I think as you go generally back over everything we've talked about, whether it's AI, whether it's robots, whether it's all these things, I think we've got to, they're, they're going to be successful like the metaverse when they solve a problem or they fill a hole that we've got in our lives can i can i just offer a parallel on that right so the my neighbor who's a who works in the building industry he has flooded his house with technology to the point where his wife doesn't know how to put the lights on she, she literally we were yeah. we were there over christmas and she said i'm trying to put the light on in the room next door she said all the lights are coming on outside the house they're all coming on in the garden and he said he said to me he said you work in technology what have you done i went oh i've just got an old-fashioned rocker switch i said you know literally i said i've apart from having speakers everywhere because i'm a nerd but everything else is as basic as basic can be because yeah. that way everyone can use it I think that's it. I, I, there was a point in me, I, I've been collecting gadgets my whole life. I sit here in an office absolutely rammed with them. 
And a lot of them I just bought that that would be fun, but not necessarily. And I look back on them, I go, it's not actually solving a problem in my life. It's an interesting thing to look at and play with. So I think, yeah, it's an interesting one. So when you think about metaverse and stuff, I think we have to think about it as, as where's that going to, what void or problem is that going to solve in people's lives? And I've, I've not seen that. So it's that killer app, right? It needs something killer. It needs something major to make it happen. And it's just not, I've just not seen it there yet. And, and trust me, VR and AR isn't it, right? That's not, I think, what, what people are going to desperately be crying out for en masse until something dramatic happens to change that technology to the next level, because I think it's still got a generation or two to go. I'm excited to see what Apple do with their AR headset and, and where they go with that, because, you know, we've got the what was originally the Oculus and now the Facebook, then the Meta Quest and Quest 2. I've got a Quest 2 sat here right next to me that we occasionally use for meetings internally and stuff. But I think that's still got another, another level of, of technology to go, at least if not two. And it may be the killer use case was was how do you work during a pandemic, which I think we've kind of gone through now, right? And everyone's found different ways of doing that. And so it may it may well be that that it's missed its time. It, it, it might have done. I think, yeah, maybe if it had been 10 years earlier, we probably would have all switched to operate in that and been much more effective than we were fighting with Zoom and other bits and pieces trying to, to trying to make a human connection. So, you know, it might be that it does get to the point where you feel like you can make a human connection with someone over the distance. Because if you now look at what we're looking at, right, so here's the interesting one about the world of work is that there's this whole conversation now about hybrid working, all in the office, all work from home, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that hybrid working is painful in that... In the, well, you've all been in those Zoom meetings where half of you are in the room and half of you aren't in the room, and there's definitely a, a, a two-tier social hierarchy in that meeting. And so you've either all got to be online or you've all got to be in the meeting room. And then massive debates in organisations about whether we should all physically be together or whether we should all be distributed. And that's because there's a when you're all together in an office, there's a human interaction level that we've not quite managed to meet yet in technology, whatever that is, right? Um and even if, if people always talk about it, it's just bumping into someone in the coffee room or it's chatting with someone over lunch and things like that. Those are can be, they're slightly forced, but, you know, it's kind of in that way. So maybe there's a way from a technology perspective, not Metaverse, because Metaverse isn't about VR and AR. It's just about some great big online world. But if you get that great big online world combined with some huge leap forward in technology that means that we truly feel like we're interacting on a human level with each other to the same level as being physically there that's when it could get really, really interesting. But I think we've got a long way to go before we get there. It's interesting because I read an article, uh, I guess probably as we were coming to the end of lockdown, and uh, they were talking about dopamine. And they mm -hmm. were effectively saying, well, the reason we uh, as human beings like to get to get, no, like to work together, like to speak to each other, is we release dopamine, which is a feel-good thing, and it, and it creates this bond, etc. And and it then talked about the impact of Zoom because you just don't get it. They, mm. They've measured it, they've done it. You just don't get that same level of stimulation that you do when you're in the same room or at a coffee point with someone. So maybe we just have a little button on the side and says, which says, I'd have a little bit of dopamine to kick off the day. I'll have, <laughs> it's 11, I'll have my 11s. That's what I'll do. I'll have my 11s <laughs> dopamine dose. That's what I'll do. Well, I think it's, it's, been, it's been proven that Computer games specifically do raise dopamine levels, right? For excitement, fear, and all the other kind of stuff. And so there's there's potentially a lot to be learned from the games industry there in terms of how to engage and, and make humans feel engaged and, and, and want to be interacting with whatever that thing is that they're interacting with. There's a lot of studying going on there on how to make people play their games for longer, stay more engaged in their lanes, keep getting that dopamine hit, keep pressing that button, whatever it is. So maybe there's, there's, there's a crossover there that we've yet to find. 
Before we move on, you're very much involved in mission motorsport. It would mm. be remiss not to ask you a question about, is that just a petrol head thing? What's your take on, on that and, and why should we be interested? Yeah, well, so petrol head, as you, as you know, I, I'm, I'm a petrol head, I'm an EV head, I'm an everything, but put four wheels on it and drive around uh, head, I think is the best way to put it rather than anything. And the propulsion bit's actually the, the one of the interesting diverse facts about that. You can have different versions. Um, Mission Motorsport. So Mission Motorsport specifically was founded by a guy called Jim Cameron, major or an ex-major as he now is in the Royal Tank Regiment over 10 years ago. Last year was their 10th anniversary. And... It was a way of, I suppose, engaging with initially wounded, injured and sick, but then all veterans, people transitioning, etc., into the world of motorsports and motoring generally and, and therapy through motorsport. And, and it's got various strings under its bow from something that started by making people feel better by getting them involved in driving around tracks and being driven around tracks, which is kind of fun in itself and making people that necessarily maybe are, are not finding good reasons to get out the house or get off the sofa or, or do whatever it is and, and coming to that day to get driven around Goodwood by Chris Harris in a 911 is pretty cool. Those kind of things is, is very special. Through to engaging with and getting people into work. They've got some people to work at Jaguar Land Rover, Lotus, Tesla, you name it, and engaging with those people as well. I think it's it's about it's a way of engaging the motorsport and the motoring industry more widely with with the the veterans community and, and the military community as well. And so and that's really the summary of it. And I got involved because, you know, I've got a strong connection clearly to the military. I've got a, a love of cars and track cars. I've been racing, rallying and doing all those kind of things all of my life. And it just kind of came together in a perfect way. And the funny thing was, actually, it was based on electricity. I was using my Tesla to give rides to people at the fully charged event at Silverstone a few years ago. And the management team of Mission Motorsport got in the back of my car and we got chatting. <laughs> You'll never guess who had the back of my cab kind of thing, literally was. And, and the partnership went on from there. And I now work very closely with them. I'm a trustee, I'm a board member, and we, we do a lot of fun things. And it, it's really the highlights of the year are a couple of things. One of them, if you've not heard about it, is on the 27th of February is the National Transition Event, which is a big event at Silverstone. And that's where we have... Loads and loads of employers all exhibiting at Silverstone and for across the board. So there's, there's house builders, there's VMware is going to be there and others meeting with currently serving and veterans and trying to match those communities together and, and making sure that we, we're getting people into jobs and getting people making the, the, the best next step in their lives. And whilst at the same time downstairs, we've got a bunch of people driving people around the track, including a bunch of VMware employees who are going to be driving people around the track as part of their charitable foundation work. And the other big event that we have in the year, which is great, which I love, is the Race of Remembrance, which is just some thing to behold and just google race of remembrance but basically at anglesey we have a 12-hour endurance race which stops for a remembrance day parade in the middle of it which is kind of weird i was actually driving the car last year when you get to stop and get out your car and walk over put a berry on with your with your race suit and stand there and do a remembrance day parade and it's possibly i've been to remembrance day parade since i was a kid every year it's been the thing and to be honest this one was the most moving one i've ever been to last year because you're stood there amongst people that literally is what it's all about and yeah it's unbelievably moving and so you get through it and then we had the national anthem which was god save the king which i first time i'd ever sung that and then at the end of it there's this total silence and you all stand there, hundreds of you stood on this racetrack and you're like what next and then jim comes out shouts out let's go racing and the whole thing goes back up again you'll get back in your car and off you go <laughs> and i think you 
just to see the and the engagement with employers, the engagement with the beneficiaries is just beautiful. So yeah, that that's really it. So yeah, the Mission Motorsport has become over the years a passion of mine to the point now, yeah, so I say I'm, I'm a trustee and a board member and, and vested very much in his success. Let's move on to Crystal Ball. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. So we have covered lots of topics about the future, um, but what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2023 and beyond? And how do you think that will help or hinder financial services? I think, honestly, and we've talked about lots of technologies in this podcast today, possibly the one that's going to transform and or revolutionise financial services over the next five plus years has got to be machine learning and AI. As we talked about, you know, I'm not going to be the first person to say that, I'm not going to be the last person to say that, and I'm not particularly off-trend either, but... Like I said, the exciting thing now is we're getting normal people playing with AI. You're going to have normal people using AI to play markets. You're going to have normal people using AI to manage their own investment portfolios. You're going to have normal people using AI to do all manner of interesting things. Customers of financial institutions are going to get more intelligent. And if you think about it, what do a lot of people come to large investment organizations and large banks for is they come to them for their investment advice. They come to them for someone to come and do that management for them, to be that insight to the, if I give you my money, you're going to be better at making money on it than I am. And so this this arms race around technology is going to get harder and faster. But up until now, the arms race was between banks. Now the arms race is going to be between everyone. And it's very, very exciting. Yeah, we're all going to be living it, right? Yeah, I think it's exciting. I mean, you know, how could you not be excited about that? I think it's scary because you mm-hmm. don't want to be left behind. You don't want to be the one that missed the boat on that one. But equally, it's also very exciting to be part of that. Yeah, well, you also don't want to be the one that the case studies are written about going first and screwing it up. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I absolutely. Think, well, you know, no, 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 no one got a gold watch at retirement for being the biggest risk taker, right? You know, that's, that's kind of it. So. <laughs> Okay, let's move on and let's have some fun in the lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Favourite book or movie? Uh, so I don't really read books, so it's got to be movie. I've got hundreds of movies that I'll pick as favourites I can't really tell you I'll tell you the last movie I watched which was Catch Me If You Can which is an old film but my daughter who's 22 had never seen it and we sat down at the weekend and watched it and it just I love that I know it's, I'm not saying it just because it's got a banking thing because it involves checks but it was absolutely I love watching that film it's fascinating to how a kid that young just managed to do all of those things and, and it just it, it blows your mind till to this day so that, that's the kind of thing so there you go last film I watched and that's uncanny because I was just talk- I think I was talking to my daughter about how when I started in the bank, one of my first jobs was adding the MICR amounts of ink by encoding checks. <laughs> so that's uh, absolutely uncanny. All right. Uh, sorry, Brian, over to you. Well, there'll be the people listening to this in 10 years' time saying, what's a check? So let's just move on. Um- <laughs> <laughs> Let alone MICR. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. I, I had to tell my daughter what a check was because she's never really interacted with one. Uh, I asked for an LP for my Christmas present, my daughter looked at me and scratched her head. What's an LP, Dad? Okay, great. Right. Um, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time or go into the future? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd go into the future. I'd want to see what happens next. Definitely. Who's been your mentor or have you been most inspired by? 
I don't think I've got one, if I'm honest with you. Again, there's not one particular individual that I look up to and go, oh, yeah. So, no, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, the short answer to that question, there's a very long answer to that question. <laughs> but I, <laughs> short answer is I don't really think I've got one. If you weren't on this call, what would you be doing right now? Uh, it's Monday morning at 10.40, so I'd be on another Zoom of some form talking to a customer about their cloud strategy and, and what they were doing and, um, and where they were going next or, or something very similar. And if I wasn't, I'd probably be on my Peloton. <laughs> What's your favourite place of all the places you've travelled to? Oh, so I've got, I'll, I'll give you a favourite place in England and favourite place outside. My favourite place of all the places I travel to, Cape Town. Um, it's absolutely, you know, I, I'm, I'm going back there in, in April with my wife for a holiday. Absolutely love it. Just the diversity, the life, the, the people, the food, the scenery, the wildlife. It's just phenomenal. I just love it. Um, so, yeah, of all the places, and I've travelled to a lot of countries in my life, definitely. You know, Cape Town's the one that's always stood out as being the one that I would love to go back to again and again. And in the UK, it's South Devon. Kind of grew up down there, have a place down there, go there when I can. It's just, for me, it's a place of, of complete relaxation and um, everything sort of gets better down there. So, yeah. When was the last time you used cash and what did you use it for? Oh, that's a tough question. When was the last time I used cash? I can't remember. I literally can't. I'm, I'm now trying to think back. When was the last time I used cash? Oh, I think I used it to... Yeah, I know. I remember it was a long time ago. I owed someone 20 quid because they bought some food. We were out for food and I owed them 20 quid and I gave them a 20 pound note. That was it. So it was a, a human, you know, a, a, not me to another institution, but me to another, another consumer. <laughs> okay, so we talked about um, your love of gadgets, tech and um, and all things technological so what would be your favorite gadget or piece of technology oh god now that's a really horrible question for me um my favorite gadget okay no I'll, let me let me tell you my favorite gadget my favorite gadget is my electric mountain bike i think really and i've been through several of them and my latest one i was actually out yesterday because i'm going out riding out in next week and this is the funniest thing i've got an electric mountain bike and i now spend most of my time updating the firmware on my electric mountain bike before i ride it <laughs> um I, i'm no kidding so the, the bike i've now got has um it's got uh let's go through it so you've got the main battery for the bike itself and so there's the bike itself with the motor so there's a firmware update for that it's got uh, electric a wireless gear change so you've got both the firmware for the controller on the on the um, on the handlebars and for the derailleur at the back, they both need batteries and they need updating. I've got an electric dropper seat post, and so I know yes, I actually have to update the firmware in my seat as well as updating the firmware on the button over there. <laughs> I've got two different types of suspension monitoring in it, so that's four batteries and four and two different sets of firmware there and my latest one which i didn't want but it just came with the bike has actually got tire pressure monitoring so yesterday i found myself changing the batteries on the tire pressure monitors on my bike which is just the funniest thing so is, yeah, this, a, so. is this a bike with pedals joe <laughs> it does have pedals yeah yeah but i just i'm just i'm just stunned that i uh, literally I, I was sat there yesterday i can't believe i'm spending so much time here i'm seeing it's quite a considerable amount of time changing the batteries and checking all the firmware's up to date on my pedal bike <laughs> Try saying that 20 years ago. Uh, okay, so we sort of went bikes. Uh, boat, train or plane? Uh, train. Definitely train. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Um, what's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Oh, yeah, the weirdest food I've ever eaten. Um, 
I, it's not particularly weird, but just again, I tend to go back to South Africa, but I remember the first time being there and someone saying, would you like to eat some crocodile? And it was just like being passed around as, as a bit of meat. It's just a bit odd, really. That's, that's you know, What's normal to some others is very weird to them. And yeah, to being asked around to eat crocodile. I mean, I've eaten a worm, but that was in the military. And I don't think I'm particularly, you know, you were kind of forced to eat worms. And just in case you'd have to one day, I've never in the rest of my life ever had to eat a worm. But yeah, but I suppose in terms of weirdest food, yeah, I suppose, yeah, um, crocodile. Very odd. Uh, you have to sing karaoke. What song do you pick? We didn't start the fire by Billy. Billy Joel. Um, Joel, because I know every word. Because I'm just one of those things. In fact, I'm really intrigued by that. There's something about human minds that I have trouble remembering stuff, but I remember the lyrics to songs. And so there's, the, the, you know, I'm sure there's research and studies got into that, but. I'm really bad at remembering names and faces. I'm really bad at remembering a whole bunch of weird stuff, but lyrics will come back to me from years ago. Wow. Okay. Well, we've not had that one before, so that's a, that's a very good one. It's a very good one. Um, what is your most used emoji? Uh, the winky smile thing. You know, the I know it because I type it as semicolon <laughs> dash smile, right? You know, because I've typed that since I used Usenet back in the 90s. So, you know, I was using emojis before they were called, cool, you know, back in, in, in yeah. Usenet back in late 80s, early 90s. So, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, that, it's that winking one, which is kind of the, the sort of cheeky, don't you know, kind of thing, whatever. Yeah, that's, that's it. Um, what piece of career advice do you wish you had given to your younger self? Oh, I've written a whole thing on this. <laughs> um, I, I suppose that the, you know the, there's a whole list of them, right? But if I, I pick the major one, it would be um, stop caring about what other people think about you. That would be it. I think really is it, or, or don't care so much about what other people think about you and just get on with your life. Have you ever been told you look like someone famous and who was it? Yeah, I went through a phase where my my nieces thought I looked like um, Chandler from Friends at one point. You, you can't see it now, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there was, there was a point where I was called Chandler by them and all their friends for a, for a whole period, probably about 10, 15 years ago, I suppose. Yeah. I bet they had quite the giggle on yeah, it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I was well, called so gone for George Clooney. Well, oh yeah, really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a neighbour of mine, but yeah, I wouldn't go for that. Yeah, I know the, the Chandler one was quite funny because it also they, they all none of them knew what I did for a job, and they could never I, I could never explain it to them properly. So it matched up really well because you know in Friends, no one ever knows what Chandler really does for a job, and even he can't tell you. And so it's kind of like the same for me because you imagine trying to explain my job to a to a twelve year old girl is very hard. <laughs> the first concert you ever went to. Oh, the first concert I ever went to, believe it or not, was um, Status Quo with my mum and dad. There you go. It was the first concert I ever went to. Wow. Status Quo, my mum and dad. And um, yeah, most interesting. And I then went on to see, I think very soon after that, I went to see the Rhythmics and a couple of others. But yeah, Status Quo. This is probably apt. Um, should a car have a name? And if so, what have you named yours? <laughs> uh, yeah, cars definitely should have names. Uh, my... Tesla Model X is called Red 5, as it as it should be, because, you know, it's an X-Wing. Um, uh, I've got a Tesla Model 3 that's called Peter, and the reason for that <laughs> is because um, it's red, and when you look in the app, it says parked, and so my daughter, who's a big, you know, comic book fan, said, oh, Peter parked, red, Peter Parker, Spider-Man kind of thing, so there's a link with that. Um, the, the power walls on the side of my house are called Snap, 
because I've got the power. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> oh, no. A lot of people won't get that. They're no, just not going to get it. They're not going to yeah, get that, yeah. right? And, and, and then the, the comedy joke is that um, every other car in my house is called Dave. And it's because when my when I don't my kids were younger, the girls, they, there was this thing, they always used to get like a new toy and they come and say, Daddy, what should I call it? And I just I got so bored, I was like, Dave. So it became this standard thing that everything in the house got called Dave. And so I did actually have several cars over the years have been called Dave, just because it was like, what do we call it? You've got to call it Dave. Okay, it's called Dave. So there you go. <laughs> I um when we got our dog, which is a, a female dog, uh, I wasn't allowed to do it, but I wanted to call it Dave. And Jen said, Why are you gonna call it Dave? I said, So when people ask, they go but it's a girl, and we can have a constructive conversation about gender. <laughs> but I wanted to call it Dave. I wasn't even allowed to call the cat Dave. That, that, honestly, we went for Doris instead. Uh, Doris my, the cat. My, my, my Dave is a direct <laughs> reference to um, Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> well, I mean, mine is. <laughs> yeah. why, why do they call you Dave? Right. Um, <laughs> last question uh, before we go down the rabbit hole of uh, 1970s music and TV. Um if you were to be an ice cream, what ice cream would you be? Oh, uh, I don't know. That's that's the oddest question I think I've been asked for a very long time. Um, I can only name my favourite ice cream really on that one, which is Magnums. But I don't know why I'd be a Magnum, but I quite like them. <laughs> <laughs> we can go with that. We can go with that. Um, uh, Joe, thank you. Thank you so much. Um been fabulous uh, fabulous conversation covering so many topics um how can our listeners learn more about you and what you get up to well so there's um i've just done a, a i don't do predictions i hate doing predictions so um because only because someone will come along in 10 years and look back and go look what that idiot said none of that was true um but i have been tricked into writing sort of my my 10 things i think are important to think about um for 2023 and beyond so there's a blog for that that's been recently published which i'm sure we'll get the link for there or just come and follow the um, the odd and twisted stream of consciousness that is me on Twitter, which is at Joe Bagley, J-O-E-B-A-G-U-L-E-Y. Um, and that's the best place to come and see what's going on in my brain or not. Fabulous. Fabulous. To keep up with Joe, please follow him on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'll have links in our show notes. And as always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team or connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Owen or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.